we are in the book of James, chapter 2. And so I'll give you a minute to open your Bibles to James, chapter 2. James, of course, the great reformer Martin Luther called it a strawy epistle. He didn't really like it very much. He didn't think that there was a lot of gospel in it. But actually, when you start peering just beneath the surface of James and looking at what James is doing, you see that actually the gospel radiates through in profound ways all over. You just have to have eyes to see it. So James, of course, was the half-brother of Jesus. He was the leader of the Jerusalem Council. This is perhaps the oldest book that we have, the earliest book of the New Testament. So what we're looking at here is a real glimpse into historic, one might say primitive Christianity. Christianity at the very root. Here we are 2,000 2000 years later, and there's been a proliferation of Christianity around the the world, but where did it start? What did it look like when it was in its early days? James gives us this really beautiful glimpse. And tonight, we're going to be in James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. And James is wrestling with one of the thorniest and perennially one of the most contested issues in the church, the whole question of the relationship between faith and works. And I have some remarks on that tonight that I think are both going to be clarifying for you tonight and helpful and also timely in terms of the moment that we're living in. And so before we get to the text of Scripture, let's just acknowledge the presence of the living Word, the Lord Jesus, who's with us, teaching us. Now just begin to open your heart to Him and lift up your adoration to Him. Jesus, we say we need you. Jesus, we say we're hungry for you. Jesus, we say we're desperate to be more fully your people. Jesus, we're asking for liberation. Jesus, we are asking for freedom. Jesus, we're asking that you would lay your mighty hands upon us tonight. We're asking that you would break us free of everything that's holding us back from being your people. And we're asking that you would pour your spirit out upon us in a fresh way tonight. I'm asking, Lord Jesus, as the preacher, you know I feel this sense of desperation every time I preach, that what good are human words unless the living word does something with them? And so I'm asking tonight, Jesus, that you, the teacher, capital T, that you would walk among us, that you'd illuminate minds, that you would elevate hearts, and that you would draw even our bodies into obedience tonight, into a sense of your revelation and your presence. Grant that, I'm praying tonight. May the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said real loud. Amen. What good is it? Verse 14 of chapter two. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food and if one of you says to them, Oh, go in peace. There's an air of the sanctimonious on this blessing. Go in peace and keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have deeds. All right, well, show me your faith without deeds, and I'm going to show you my faith by what I do. So you believe that there is one God. Fine, good. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. You foolish person, James goes on, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Wasn't our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? 
You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made, what's the word there? Are you gonna have to do better than that tonight, New Life Feast? Come on. And his faith was made, it was made complete, that's right, by what he did. And the scripture then was filled up that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. And you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, man, I missed hearing that from you. It's good to hear it. Thanks be to God. Indeed, it seems as though what James is dealing with, James all of a sudden gets really theological here. He's been pretty practical up to this point, but he shifts gears into a theological mode. And what he's dealing with here, what it seems like, is a sort of breakdown in his community, the communities that he's pastoring, of an understanding of the relationship between faith and good works. So look back at verse 14. Uh, One person claims to have faith but no deeds, right? So here's a person that says, well, I've got faith in Jesus. I believe that he's the resurrected son of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'll sign up for that. But he doesn't have any deeds. And James asks, can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. And one of you says, oh, go in peace. May the blessing of the Lord. We just sang the song, the blessing, you know. May his blessing go before you and behind you and beside you and all around you and within you. And he's with you and he's with you. He's with you. And well, you don't actually take out your checkbook to help out with that person. But James goes, what good is that? And that's fraudulent faith. That's empty faith. What good is it to declare that you have confidence in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, if you're not willing to partner with Jesus in what Jesus is all about? Can such a person's faith save them? James says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Then somebody else in the community says, well, maybe it works like this, James. Maybe it's not just that you don't need faith. Maybe it's that faith and deeds are, you know, equal paths to God. It's a very postmodern thing to say, you know. All paths lead to God. Some people have faith that leads them to the Lord, right? And other people have deeds that lead them to the Lord. And some people do meditation and others do yoga and other people do this and they do that and all roads lead to God. And James goes, you guys, no, no, no. That doesn't work either. What James is out to show us is that there is a natural and an organic relationship between faith and deeds. It's not that the deeds are tacked on to the faith, nor is it that faith and deeds are sort of separate things and separate paths, but James wants us to see that faith and deeds have a natural and organic relationship one with another. Look down at verse 20. He's got two examples, and I just love this. Because as a preacher, when you start putting together sermons, you're always thinking, like, what I need is some really good biblical or personal life examples to show these people what the text is saying. And it's really nice when the text goes out of its way to furnish you with its own examples. <laughs> so that saved me a little bit of work. I just thank you, James. Good that from one pastor to another, I do really appreciate that. So he gives us two examples, and the first example that he gives us is the father of the faith himself, Father Abraham. 
And you might remember the story of Abraham. Abraham is just minding his own business, living in Ur of the Chaldees with his family. And the Lord begins to call him out. Says, leave your father's household and your land and your people and go to the land that I will show you. And Abraham does. He starts following this God. He says, I'll make your name great, the Lord says to him, and you'll be a blessing and I'll bless those who bless you. And I'll curse anyone who curses you and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And so Abraham begins to follow this God. And there are twists and turns in the road. And at one point, several chapters later, Genesis chapter 15, Abraham has this moment of encounter with the living God. And God says to him, Abraham, don't be afraid. He says, I am your shield, your very great reward. And Abraham goes, uh, God, yeah, thank you very much for that. I do appreciate your consoling thoughts to me on this depressing day. Uh, but Lord, you've promised me that there would be a holy family that would come through me, okay? And I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm getting up there in years and Sarah isn't the spring chick that she used to be either, okay? How, how are you gonna do this, Lord? Are you really gonna build a family through us? At this point, Lord, all I've got, he says in Genesis 15, he says, all I've got to inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. Eleazar is over there going, what did I ever do to you, man? <laughs> Eleazar of Damascus, come on, Lord. And you know what the Lord says to him? He says, Abraham, listen to me. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. Well, open your eyes, he says, and look at the stars. So shall your offspring be, the Lord says to Abraham. And you know what the scripture says that Abraham did? Abraham believed God. And it was his confidence in God that was counted as righteousness, that God credited righteousness to Abraham's account on the basis of the fact that Abraham put his confidence in God. But that confidence, brothers and sisters, needed to be put to the test. And several chapters later, Genesis chapter 22, you know the story. The Lord asks Abraham to take Isaac, his son, his only son, the son who came from his body, the son of the promise. He said, I want you to go up to Moriah and sacrifice him. And Abraham does the unthinkable. He walks up, he marches up the mountain with Isaac and he throws himself in this ultimate, annihilating, contradictory situation. How can the God who has promised this boy to me fulfill his promise as if the boy is dead? But Abraham follows through on his obedience and it's not until the knife is about to fall that the angel of the Lord grabs Abraham's hand and says, don't do it. Now he says, I know that you fear God because you haven't even withheld the son of the promise from me. It's like Abraham believed in the God of the promise so much that he was willing to walk in that dark place, even let go of the promise for the sake of obeying the promiser. And do you know what the writers of the scripture says? Do you know what James says? James says that that faith that Abraham had in Genesis 15 that was credited to him as righteousness, that was completed by what he did. Does that make sense? It was matured. It was perfected by what he did. See, the faith and the deed, brothers and sisters, were not separate things. They were the same thing, looked at from different angles. He gives another example. Look down and... Verse 25, he says, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different 
direction. Rahab, Rahab has heard of the deeds of the God of Israel. The spies come to Jericho and she gives them lodging and protects them because she knows that it's good to be on the side of the God of Israel. She risks her own life to do this thing. And so her faith was not just a sort of, and this is how so many of us think about faith in our modern time. Rahab's faith was not just a sort of flutter of the mind, okay? Ooh, yes, I believe in the God of Israel. We're good now, right? I said the sinner's prayer. Everything's fine. No. What happened with Rahab, brothers and sisters? She did something. Her faith in the God of Israel was manifest in her actions. And so James concludes the teaching by saying, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. It's dead. It's dead. It's not anything. See, James, brothers and sisters, is begging us to see that the works of obedient love are in fact the full flowering of faith in the human soul. That the works of obedient love are the full flowering of faith in the human soul. That they're not something tacked on to faith and they're not different from faith. You might put it this way, that when faith becomes fully itself, what does it look like? It looks like works. (laughs) It looks like deeds. It looks like action. It looks like movement. It looks like love put in motion. The great reformer himself who criticized James as being an epistle of straw, Martin Luther, do you know what he said? Martin Luther said that the whole purpose of the gospel is to enable eros, a strong desire, and agape for all God's commandments. That's the whole purpose of the gospel, that God doesn't just save us to sort of whisk us up into the heavens one day, but he saves us, brothers and sisters, to give us new hearts. He saves us to give us new spirits. He saves us to transform us. He saves us to take us and by his spirit to knit us into the very life of Christ so that we become the expression of Christ in the world. Works of obedient love, they are the full flowering of faith in the human soul. And this goes back actually all the way to the Old Testament. Think about Psalm 119. The psalmist said, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. He says, your commands make me wiser than my enemies for they're ever with me. I have more insight than my teachers for I obey all your statutes. The psalmist said, I open my mouth and I pant longing for your commandments. When Moses was on the mountaintop with God and the Lord said, I want to show you who I am. Do you know what Moses said? Moses said, God, teach me your ways. If you show me what you're like, oh God, if you show me how you behave, then I can follow it, then I can live it. Then I can lead your people the way that you want me to lead your people. This has always been the case, brothers and sisters, that when our confidence in God is legitimate, when our when our loyalty to God is legitimate, when our fidelity to God is legitimate, what it looks like is love. What it looks like is obedience. What it looks like is a life in motion towards the living God. My wife Mandy and I, going on 20 years of marriage this August, and 20 years ago this August. Thank you, I appreciate that. Nothing to sneeze at, you know? 20 years, pretty good. 20 years ago, down at the altar, we exchanged rings with each other. We made vows to each other. 
We pledged for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness or in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. That was the pledge that we made to one another. And you know what the last 20 years have been? The last 20 years have been that pledge growing up and doing things, maturing, becoming itself. Every sort of manifestation of it, all the little acts of sacrifice and all the little deeds uh, that were selfless deeds, all the little moments of getting up in the middle of the night with crying babies and it's your turn and no, I know it's your turn, but let me take it this time. All of that stuff, that, that's the love growing up. That, that's the pledge of faith growing up. That's the fidelity. That's the vow growing up and becoming what it needs to be. I got a picture to show you tonight just to drive the point home. Here, what's this on the screen? What is that? Yeah, it's an acorn. Next slide. What is that? It's an oak tree. Where does the oak tree come from? In fact, the oak tree and the acorn are not separate things at all, are they? And that's what James is saying in this teaching. That when the acorn of faith becomes fully itself, that it looks like that. That it looks like this kind of explosion of faith, hope, and love. And it looks like good deeds everywhere. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, one of the most tragic things that has happened to the church in our day is that we've severed the relationship between faith and works in the minds of most believers. And it's true. We are not saved by our deeds, Okay. There's no amount of righteous deeds that you can do to merit God's favor. And do you know why that is? Because in Christ Jesus, God has already loved and favored us from all eternity. But there's no finite work that you could ever do that would add to the extravagant favoring that God has already lavished on us in Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen? Guys. There's nothing you can do to add to it. And just by contrast, there is nothing that you can ever do that will ever take away from the mad favor that God has for you in Christ Jesus. Do you understand that? You cannot earn your way to God. But once you are saved, once there is that having been pulled into the divine life, then the works that we do are what we do because of our extravagant love for the God who loves us first. Are you with me tonight? This is how the Apostle Paul put it in Galatians 5 and verse 6. He says, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value, but the only thing that counts is faith, what? Expressing itself in love. The only thing that counts. See, when faith really takes root in us, the result is a lifelong, exuberant explosion of works, of obedience, love. We're not trying to earn God's favor. We know that that's settled in us. But what we're doing is because God has loved us the way that he has, what we do is we keep going, God, how can I love you more? What can I do? How can I show my love? That's what it's all about. The whole affair of faith is love. It's love from beginning to end. We love because he first loved us. Love is the reflex. Love is the response. Love, when God puts his love in us, what it does is it rebounds back into the world. It's good works. You say, what are some of the works of love? Help me think about this, Andrew. What can I do? What does it look like? I'll give you four real quick. 
What does it look like? How do we give expression to the works of love in the world? Number one, I think we can meet the practical needs of people. We can meet the practical needs of the people. Do you remember the beautiful statement of Luke in the book of Acts, chapter 10, verses 37 to 38? Luke, is, he's got the apostle Paul is preaching. Actually, Peter is preaching the gospel. And Peter says this. Peter says, and you know all about Jesus of Nazareth, whom God anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good. <laughs> what a great way to think about the life of Jesus. That what Jesus did is Jesus had his eyes open to human pain and human need and human suffering. And wherever there was a need that Jesus could fulfill, he just did it. Why? Because that's what God does. God rushes to the point of human pain. God rushes to the point of human need and he fills it. God is ever our helper. In fact, the Holy Spirit is called the helper. And Jesus, when he was getting ready to leave, he said, the Lord's going to send you, my father's going to send you another helper. He had been the helper. And when we get tucked into his life, we become the helpers. Some powerful questions that you can ask people sometimes. You can ask them, how are things going? What do you need? How can I help? Just try it sometime. Next time you're with a friend, the next time you're talking to somebody, one of your coworkers or whatever you're doing, how are things going? What do you need? How can I help? I promise you, doors will open and you'll be able to rush in with the life of God. Number two, we can encourage others. We can encourage others. Sometimes all you need is just to have somebody fling their arm around you. I know that we're physical distancing, but we'll kind of wink, wink on that. <laughs> Throw their arm around you and just tell you that it's gonna be okay. Put courage back in your heart. That's what it means to encourage. <laughs> that you're tucking courage in people's souls and it's giving them strength. We can meet the practical needs of others. We can encourage others. Number three, and this has become so important in our time, we can defend the powerless, brothers and sisters. We can defend the powerless. And I just want to say to you tonight, in light of the last week that we've had in our country and the rioting and the frustration that's come to the surface, all of that, it has come to the surface because there are wounds in our country that have not been healed, okay? There are wounds in our country that have not been healed. And it is a non-negotiable of biblical faith that what we do when we have power, when we have agency, when we have ability, what we do, when we have a voice, what we do is we lend it to those that don't have it. That we find where the place of oppression is, that we find where the place of pain is, we find the places where justice has not been done, and we go down into that place and we pick up the cries of those who have been oppressed and mistreated and we amplify their voice in the world. Do you understand that? It's a non-negotiable element of biblical faith. This is the God who was revealed at Exodus. That when his people were crying out in pain in Egypt, God came down to help and he sent Moses into that situation. And when the people of God were delivered, do you know it recurs throughout the Pentateuch? That when you read the law, the Lord consistently says to them, listen now, you, when you see somebody oppressed, when you see somebody mistreated, when you see somebody pushed to the side, you rush to their aid because you know what it was like to be slaves in Egypt. It's a non-negotiable element of biblical faith, brothers and sisters. The opportunities are in front of us all around right now to defend the powerless, to rush to the aid 
of those who are being mistreated. Number three and number four, we can pray for people. We can pray for people. I can't tell you how often I have friends from around the country or in our city who when I'm discouraged, I'm defeated, or they don't even know it sometimes. And they'll just shoot me that little text message. Hey, Andrew, I was praying for you this morning and the Lord just put it on my heart to say to you, picks me up, we can pray for people in practical ways, practical ways. And what we're doing, brothers and sisters, when we're giving expression to these things is that we're showing our love for Jesus. That's the whole deal. We're not trying to worm our way into the favor of Jesus, but we're passionately loving the Lord Jesus who passionately loves us. When I was a kid, we had a um, family member, Uncle Donnie, who had very significant um, intellectual disabilities. He lived, was able to live on his own, uh, but just barely, just barely. And so it required a lot of effort from the family to take care of him. And my mom had the task week after week of making sure that a lot of Donnie's bills were paid and that he was fully stocked with groceries. She, take, she took good care of him. And uh, as often as not, on, a, on Saturdays, my mom would ask me to go with her to take care of Uncle Donnie. And so we would go over to his little apartment and he lived in a little apartment kind of above a, uh, it was like a little duplex thing. And whenever we'd go up there, Donnie didn't do a great job taking care of himself and, and his apartment, as often as not, didn't smell very good and he wasn't taken care of very good. And I just remember eight, nine, 10 years old, I just remember thinking, this is the last place in the world that I want to be. And my mom, week after week after week, would go and tend to Donnie's needs, and get his little grocery list and, yeah, and Donnie, what do you need? And are there bills that you can pay? And I'll take care of. Donnie was always, you know, he would always say, Nancy, the TV's broken. You know, this was back in the day when you had little dials on the TV. He would say, Nancy, the TV is broken. And that's because he was messing with the tint. Do you remember the tint on your TV? So the TV would look all purple and green and wacky. And she'd go, okay, Donnie, we'll fix the TV. And we'd go over there and, you know, week after week after week after week. And I, in my own eyes, in my own heart, my mother was a saint for doing that. All of that, and it would have never occurred to her to try to do that work as a way of earning God's favor. She did it because she loved Jesus. <laughs> That's the whole thing, guys. That's the whole thing, is that we've been touched by the love of God. And so the best way for us to use our lives is that we spend it in love for other people. I think of the great saint, Mother Teresa. In the 1940s, she was... Uh, serving as a teacher in a convent in and around Calcutta. And she was on a train ride and she had felt the call of God to do that. And she had some proximity to the poor, but she was not fully embedded in the lives of the poor. And on a train ride to a retreat one year, she was on her way to Darjeeling, a town in India. And she heard the Lord Jesus say to her, she called it a call within a call. The Lord Jesus said, Teresa, come and be my light. But carry my light into the darkest places and to the, to the poorest of the poor. And you go and you lift them up. And that began her call and she started moving. She moved away from the convent and founded the Missionaries of Charity. And she did work among the most despised and overlooked people in India. And when you ask Teresa, why are you doing what you're doing? What motivates your work? Do you know what she would say? She would say, I'm trying to love Jesus like he has never been loved before. Brothers and sisters, what if the church was full of people like that? What could we do in the world? What if the church was so full of people 
that had been captivated by the love of Jesus, that they could think of nothing better to do with their lives than spend their lives on the love of Jesus by serving other people. What could we do? But that's the whole call of being the church. And in order to do this, we're going to have to have new hearts and new spirits. James says that as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. The Greek word for spirit in the New Testament is pneuma. James here is talking about the human spirit within them. But we know that the only way that the human spirit is made alive is by the spirit of God. And so Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 36 and verse 26, that I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. See what we do, brothers and sisters, and we gather in the house of God for worship. What we do in our personal times of discipleship is we're saying yes to the Holy Spirit. We're saying, Lord, fill us, transform us, give us new hearts and new spirits and send us out into the world with blessing. And so with that, I want to invite you just to stand to your feet tonight if you're able. And Seth and the band are going to come and lead us in one more tune. And I want you just to, to begin to open yourself up to the spirit of the living God in a fresh way. Spirit, here we are. We need you tonight. We need you tonight. We need you tonight. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And the only way that we come alive as the Lord Jesus intends, the only way that we'll be able to rush out into the streets and into the city squares and into our neighborhoods and businesses, into the civic centers, into the halls of power with the life of the kingdom is if you fill us afresh. And so we're asking, Spirit of the living God, tonight that you would do that, that you would fill us in a fresh way. Come. Rip off our stony hearts. Come, rip the calluses off of us. Come, we pray, make us new in your presence tonight. Make us new in your presence tonight. We say, Spirit of the living God, fall upon us. Fall upon us. Fall upon us.